A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hello listeners, I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI360. Welcome to our final episode of the 2019 season of A Deeper Look podcast. As our returning listeners know, this year we've explored the darker side of development, the paradoxes and unintended consequences of development efforts. We've had fascinating conversations that have spanned from corruption to protecting from sexual exploitation and abuse to the challenges that growing up in a refugee camp pose. We haven't shied away from discussing the tough topics that confront us when we're doing human development work. And I want to thank all of the participants of this year's podcast for bringing candid, unvarnished perspectives to the challenges that we face. For this final episode, we are going to take a deeper look into the dilemmas in addressing poverty and inequality here in the U.S. I have a wonderful guest to help us explore this topic, David Dotson, president of MDC. David, welcome to a Deeper Look podcast. Thank you so much, Patrick. I'm delighted to be here. So, David, in this podcast, we have typically explored the challenges facing human development work in an international context. But those challenges are really the same no matter where you're working. And I'm very excited to be able to hear your perspective on the challenges, the paradoxes, faced in doing development work here in the U.S. FHI 360 works in the U.S. I know MDC has a long history going back to the 1960s. It's one of the premier development agencies in the United States working in the South. Can we start with you just telling us a little bit about MDC and yourself? Certainly. Well, first about MDC. 50, 60 some years ago, North Carolina, where we, like you, are based, had a remarkable governor called Terry Sanford. In those days, the governor was limited to one term. So toward the end of his first term, he became emboldened. And he looked around and said, our state is not keeping pace with the rest of the nation, and we are burdened by poverty, and we are burdened by a legacy of structural racism. He didn't use those terms, but that's effectively what it meant. And he was faced with a, an, an uncooperative legislature, so he had a stroke of genius and said, let's create an independent entity funded by philanthropy and business to pioneer methods of addressing the intersection of poverty and race. We will call it the North Carolina Fund, It will last for five years, and then if there remains unfinished business, we will create some legacy institutions to carry on strands of the work. So the North Carolina Fund got some incredible things started. It it created a network of community action agencies. It was an early partner for the War on Poverty. It pioneered something called the North Carolina Volunteers, which were a prototype for VISTA. Hmm. And it really empowered the voices of low-income people 
to speak their truth and their needs and to work on solutions. It was governed by a group of government, nonprofit, and business leaders to come together, a biracial, maybe multiracial group, including Native Americans in North Carolina. It did not finish all of its work. You mean the human development challenges persisted? They could not be solved in, this was the 1960s. We thought we could do a lot of things, but it didn't work. Uh, At least we didn't finish the job. So a legacy institution was created to deal with employment, employability, employment discrimination, and that was called the Manpower Development Corporation. That name has since been shortened to MDC. But the through line between those early days and today is that human development and the ability of people to address their circumstances through education and work, through attaching to what we do have here, a a vibrant economy, that becomes the kind of central continuing through line Mm -hmm. for the work with MDC. Now, of course, connecting isn't the only thing that will address poverty because there are structural barriers, there are mindset challenges, there are policy barriers, but the end vision is still the same, that if we can prepare and connect people on the margins of the economy to be able to participate, advance, contribute, and thrive, we will have created some preconditions for an uplift in the society, and particularly for people and places who have been left on the margins. So would you say that the approach that that you take is one of increasing the opportunity for people to participate in a meaningful way in the economic and social life of their communities? It's about avenues of participation. It's about the levers to equip people to participate on an equal footing, and it's about clearing the barriers to equitable participation. So participation and connection, getting on the escalator, if you will, and being able to rise is the picture. But if the escalator isn't working, or if you are a long distance from the first tread, there's other work that has to be done so that the normal kind of patterns of participation are available to people who aren't prepared, who don't know how to get there, who've been blocked by discrimination and for whom policy does not facilitate entry. So we're concerned or with... could policy could even block it. It could even block it. There's work with the individual, but there's also work with the culture and systems that can either make it easy or hard for an individual to connect. Our myth, and it is a myth in America, is that we are a land of upward mobility and that every generation is able to achieve material well-being greater than the previous generation. And if we look at data which are now coming out, if you look at a map of America and you chart where economic mobility, the ability of someone to rise to a higher level than the situation of their birth in material terms, economic mobility is most constrained in the southeastern United States. And if you look at that map, this is why I like using maps, like FHI 360, you're an evidence-based e- Evidence-based, and the, and the evidence here is 
there is something pervasive in the American South that keeps people who are born at the bottom stuck or chained at the bottom disproportionately. And is that primarily racial? It has racial manifestations. It has gender manifestations. And above all, the reason that having an evidence-based approach that looks at a geography is important is that the research is telling us the conditions that either advance or impede mobility are place-based. There's something about the way place is organized, about the prevailing mindset regarding opportunity, about the prevailing narrative of who can and should advance and who shouldn't that is particular to the South. And you said this series is going to get into some challenging issues. Mm -hmm. Years ago, when I was early at MDC, we had a wonderful economist, Ed Bishop, who was a distinguished rural economist, president of several universities, advisor to several presidents. And he was fond of saying that the American South is a colonial society and a colonial economy. And what did he mean by he that? He meant that in a colonial economy, the benefits of development accrue less to indigenous people than to people who come from elsewhere to oh. exploit the mm -hmm. opportunities. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the South historically, and we are data-informed and historically informed, we have been a region that has had a model of economic development based on low wages, low taxes, low investment, and extraction rather than value-adding processes to natural resources. So that has parallels. You could take that economic formula and apply it to many parts of the so-called developing world. Absolutely. And that is what sets the American South apart. When you layer on the mindsets that allow that kind of colonial practice to endure, and there you do get to structural racism, mm -hmm. um, those are the factors that have to be disassembled if we expect the pathways to opportunity to actually operate. And, and how do we do that? How do we disassemble those well, factors? Well, this is the real hard work. What we have found to be powerful is, number one, start with data that describes the emerging future in uncompromising terms and paints a picture of the things that cannot be avoided. You look at a mobility map. If the likelihood that a child born low income in the South is only going to have a five percentage point chance of rising from the bottom quintile to the top, those are far weaker than the natural odds, which would be a 20% likelihood. If you show that and you then say, our American dream says that no one should be constrained by the circumstances of their birth, you have a terrible dichotomy between the reality that we are reproducing and the myth that we say we live by. So you right. set up the cognitive dissonance. And, and there's this contradiction. It's there. a contradiction. The other piece of data that tell us we must change our ways, is demographic data that we are becoming in the South, as we are in the country as a whole, much more racially pluralistic. And the workforce of the future, the people who are going to fuel our labor force and our economy, 
are increasingly coming from the very segments of the population that we historically have underinvested in deliberately, mm -hmm. people of color. So basically, you said, how can we survive as we are increasingly dependent on people that we historically have underinvested in unless we change our mindset about investment? Now, those are hard truths to recognize, but there are people who are motivated by shared interest more than self-interest. And our approach is to find those leaders who are motivated to change current circumstances and build a different future and work with them. And what that means in this environment where there are many cross currents is a great deal of local work with people who are motivated to change local systems and conditions and then amplify what they're doing in an advocacy voice to argue for broader policy So that change. goes back to your point about place-based yes. work. Yes. I guess building from the grassroots or at the community level. Yes. When you look at place-based approaches, what does the dichotomy between urban and rural look like? Because we hear a lot about yeah. that in the political discourse yeah. today. One dichotomy or one challenge, if you will, and we've done a lot of work in rural areas in the Mississippi Delta, in Appalachian, Kentucky, and West Virginia, in the Rio Grande Valley. One challenge is the absence of civic and institutional infrastructure, places where people can gather and institutions through which they can do their what work. What about churches? We have worked with churches. You're asking some very difficult questions, and unfortunately I'm, I may have to speak the truth. Please do. It, it has, having a Master of Divinity degree, I'm somewhat qualified to speak about <laughs> churches. And the sad thing is that in the South, the white Protestant church has never been a champion of equity. Never. No. Uh -huh. And so it is a challenge to rely on the church in most places to take a countercultural view of society and work for change. Not saying it's impossible, but it is a challenge. And, we have, and we've done work to try to inspire congregations to reach beyond themselves and Martin Luther King the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. So, mm -hmm. you know, that is an infrastructure that is challenging. The infrastructure that we have typically found to be more adaptable, and it is pervasive in rural areas, are community colleges, principally because they have a mission of building human capital, but many of them also have a mission of working on economic and workforce development and entrepreneurship. So they're naturally oriented to both the supply and the demand side of the economy. And they are the form of higher education where low and in, moderate income people most typically show up to engage. So we've had a lot of success with them. And they're secular institutions yes. as well. Yes. It would be interesting to look at that difference between secular institutions, which you say are more open, open or yes. better less, less, less burdened. Less burdened. That's <laughs> yes. a good way to put it. Less yes. burdened. Yes in terms of addressing these social challenges yeah. versus the religious institutions yeah. who carry this set of values 
They're more embedded in a culture that has aspects of these self-limiting characteristics. Or of the structural racism or other other kind of structural... And uh, the other thing is, churches in the South are better at the charitable relief of immediate need than they are at advocacy for the change of systems. So even if they aren't burdened by the cultural inheritance... And it's important. We need we need charitable relief right. of immediate need. But that is where religious institutions typically are more comfortable. That's their strength. Yes. And we need that strength. Yeah, but that we makes can't sense. ask necessarily them to move toward systems change or advocacy. They can be part of a coalition and very often bringing that kind of spirit of new possibility is a very important part of a conversation but they typically are better members of a collaborative than leaders of a change Yeah, effort. that ties into something we often talk about uh, in building coalitions, which is to have them fit for purpose. Yes. So you don't ask institutions yes. to do things that they're not really yep. well-equipped to do. Yes. When you're in a rural area, they're thinly populated, there's thin capacity, people don't necessarily have a lot of free time to devote. Creating those fit-for-purpose entities, it takes more work to create the environments where that is possible, but it's not impossible. They're very vigorous community-based entities in Appalachia. There are examples of similar things in the Mississippi and Arkansas Delta that are emergent. So it's not impossible, it's just deeper. As you say, the issues of poverty are deeply embedded in rural America as just the nature of the rural economy is threatened. You've been with MDC since 1987. And you've been the president and leader of the organization since 1999. So, So for 20 years. Yes. How have you seen the evolution of both the challenges and the responses to addressing human development needs in this country? I think of evolution as being directional, and I guess what I've experienced is more of an ebb and flow mm-hmm. that is a, a high tides of engagement and low tides of exit. And the two factors that propel the tide One is political commitment, and the other that we see is philanthropic commitment. And sometimes those work in harmony when, under the Clinton administration here, where we had a president from the South who understood firsthand what the challenges were in poor rural areas, there was a flowering of attention to rural development and rural development initiatives, in part because that was part of the lived experience of the chief executive. And philanthropy accompanied that energy and in many cases contributed to it. So you saw a real rise in attention to community development finance organizations, lending organizations that were rooted in rural and low-income communities that could have relationships with the federal government for capital and were reinforced by philanthropy. So that was a high watermark for bottom-up community-oriented change and infrastructure building and resource development. With a change in administration 
that was paralleled by a change in philanthropic focus, particularly in terms of rural America, there was a, a rapid vanishing of yeah. support for rural areas. By the early 2000s, we had fallen from that peak of engagement and focus priority, for instance, on rural areas. It's very interesting timing because that's right around the same time where you have the impact of globalization yes. really changing the the shape of the labor force, the yes, type exactly. of jobs that exactly. are available, exactly. not just in rural areas, but in yeah. the South. Yeah. That change was coming for a long time, but perhaps the social attention to rural and small towns that existed in the early 1990s masked some of the some of that change yes, that was happening. Yeah, real, right. real erosion. And now we find ourselves in a time when the rural population is significantly decreasing. There's migration into cities, very often of rural people, this is true in the South, who come to cities seeking opportunity but don't have the educational preparation to connect to it. Which is exactly what we deal with uh, of internationally. Course. Yes, yes. So the rural poor migrate to cities and become the urban poor. And if you look at some of our large cities in the South, Atlanta, Memphis, these are places where migrating people come and enter economies that are far more dependent on knowledge assets for someone to be able to move forward. And because of the state of rural schools and rural preparation, they often don't have it. So this is a real parallel between global forces of urbanization and what we see in the American South. And you go back to what MDC got started with. Terry Sanford was also a champion for education, and he was a major force in building North Carolina's community college system into what was and still is one of the most pervasive systems in the, in the country. That was to create an educational infrastructure that would allow rural people to be skilled for opportunities, both urban and rural. Mm-hmm. And and we have not maintained our investment in that infrastructure, even though one might argue it's more needed today, as needed today as it was then. So well, I think it's probably is is more needed because you see the nature of the economy, the types of jobs, the structure of the labor force and the impact of new technology yes. posing a whole different set of challenges. Exactly. exactly. To workforce. Exactly. And the community colleges and other educational institutions are the frontline institutions to help manage this transformation that's happening in our country. A- absolutely. And it's not just in our country. Yes. It's across the world. And one of the reasons I'm so happy to have you pointing out the challenges that we're facing here in the south of the U.S. is because there's the same challenges that countries around the world are facing, and it reinforces that principle in the sustainable development goals that essentially said human development challenges are universal. Yes. They're not confined to developing yes. countries yes. and developed countries. There's not developing counties and developed counties. These challenges affect society across society. Yes, absolutely. And some of the most interesting work that we have been privileged to do has been the work supported 
by the Ford Foundation that actually got development leaders from abroad to come to the American South for interactions. Mm -hmm. And it was both fascinating to see how international insights into building indigenous infrastructure and community voice could actually inspire folks in this country and point a way for what they might do. We've also seen that at FHI 360, where we have programs here in the U.S. that are informed by practice overseas, and then vice versa. And so you start to get authentic exchange. That is really so. About 20 years ago, we were working extensively in the United States to strengthen rural community colleges in the poorest parts of America. And we were invited by the Ford Foundation that had an idea that this form of practical, community-centered higher education that is very much rooted in the community needs and culture could be something that could help, in this case, the new nation of Namibia think about its education and development infrastructure. So for five years off and on, we worked in northern Namibia with a group of leaders in a very inclusive process to take the ideas underneath the American community college system, practically oriented education that was community-centered and technical, and very much grounded in speaking to local conditions and use a community engagement process to help leaders in northern Namibia, which is the populated part of that country, figure out how to create a new campus of the National University, which was based in the capital. Right. And it was a it was a wonderful process that went on for several years of having Namibian folk come to America, rural America, and go to the Rio Grande Valley and to Indian reservations and see how an institution could be built by people to reflect and support the conditions of local development. And that campus has developed, and it was a wonderful exchange of an American model put in a in an African context with the principles of engagement by people to shape the fabric of the institution to serve their needs. I've actually visited oh my that campus before. It's oh my great gosh. it's great to hear the backstory there. There's something I want to highlight that you've mentioned in this podcast that I think is a really important insight and takeaway for our listeners, which is we often talk about development progress and embedded in that term is the notion of a linear process that is always moving forward in a positive direction. But you phrased it as the tides of development that can come in and they can go out. And I think that thinking of development work or the development challenges more in terms of tides, and those tides are carried or influenced by politics, yes, yes. by economic forces that are, that are beyond the community. It's a very good way. It's a very effective way to conceive of development work. And I think the theory of change behind that notion is more apt, is more aligned with reality than when we speak in terms of development progress. Well, and I think that has been the experience we have seen in some of these hard places where you do have waves of concern and investment followed by long periods of withdrawal. 
and the question is what kind of vessel can be put into that environment to help move with the tide. Right, right. And and we've spent a lot of time trying to identify, strengthen, or equip, or in some cases build place-based institutions that can be present when situations change in adaptable circumstances. I like that term adaptable because that has been one of the themes that we have repeatedly come across as we think about the challenges confronting the development community. So we've talked a little bit about the challenges, the changing nature of those challenges, but this this notion of continual progress is a myth. You've mentioned place-based approaches and you've talked a lot about the importance of building community infrastructure, you know, localizing things. What other responses do you see emerging to address the challenges? Well, one of the things we are working on now that does, I guess, combine a place-based approach with a community infrastructure is our work to strengthen or equip more place-based philanthropic resources in the South that can be sources of what we call social venture capital for the South. Mm -hmm. So I want to give you a a statistic. It was said a few years ago that the American South has a third of U.S. poverty in terms of people in poverty, a quarter of U.S. population, and a sixth of U.S. philanthropic assets. Right. And, so a, very, a big imbalance. Big imbalance. There. And in fact, the largest foundation in the South, the Duke Endowment, about three and a half, almost $4 billion, its assets are just, what, 10% of what's in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation right. alone. So if you believe that philanthropy can be society's venture capital and that we are dramatically undercapitalized relative to our needs, and if we recognize that there are forms of philanthropic infrastructure that are developing across the South now, principally in community foundations and in hospital conversion foundations where a public hospital is sold to a private company and the resulting funds become a public endowment. If you look at that landscape, there are significant pockets of philanthropic resource growing across the South that are place-based. So you see an increase in philanthropic resources directed to the South or available? They're available. They are situated in the South and available for the work of place-based, equity-oriented development. Right. But they are not oriented (laughs) to that. (laughs) And so we are creating now an, an institute for Southern Philanthropy. It will launch in January. MDC is? Yes. And Mm -hmm. we will work with place-based foundations that are mission dedicated to investing in communities and help them build an analysis of the development challenges and the challenges to advancing equity and shared well-being, not in a linear way that assumes a straight line of progress, Mm -hmm. but in an adaptive way that allows them to test some strategies, build um, community infrastructure that is in fact adaptable, and iterate their way through investment 
to help their communities be better off. And we're very excited about this. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. When you talk about place, yes, what form does that take? Is that a city? Is it a region? Can be both. There's a very powerful example about 50 miles north of where we are sitting right now in Durham in, in a place called Danville, Virginia. 15 years ago, that community sold its public hospital to a private company, resulting in $200 million of endowment. And through some advising from MDC, we had had a prior association with them, the community elected to turn that endowment into the corpus of a philanthropic foundation dedicated to helping a community that once had been enormously wealthy with textiles and tobacco recover its economic footing and spread well-being and prosperity to a much larger base. This place had it had been a mill town that lost its mill. Right. And through dedicated, strategic, very wise investment in education, in community infrastructure and technology infrastructure, and in community mindset, and I can tell you a little bit about that, they really have begun to create a new consciousness, a new sense of the possible in a region that thought it was simply on a downward slope. So you mentioned the the importance of mindset My, exactly. multiple times. Exactly. So can you say more about what is that mindset that can overcome some of these darker yep. tendencies that we've seen holding people back or creating more more inequity? So one important mindset is the mindset of agency. Do people believe things happen to them or they can cause things to happen? I think that is absolutely fundamental. And, you know, back to the American South, in a region that has been characterized by extraction and colonialism, personal agency is not a virtue that is encouraged. Mm-hmm. And, and when the economy goes away, when the tides go out, Very often there's a residual mindset that's been built up over generations that we're dependent on somebody else telling us what to do. Right. And so a critical mindset is, I don't really like the word, but an imaginative or or, or entrepreneurial, I was going to say, mindset that says we somehow are capable of creating an alternative future to the present that we see today. Well, and that ties into your concept of social venture capital Yeah, exactly, exactly, well. exactly. So what happened in this town of Danville? They had an endowment, but there was a mindset. There was, they will tell you, there was a mill town mindset. The mill workers wait for the boss man, was a boss man, to say, thou shalt do this. And you internalize that, and you lose your sense of agency. You just don't do, you never step out of bounds. And so the foundation decided, what can we do to change that? And somebody hit on a very wonderful idea. We're going to make small amounts of money available, $1,000, $2,500, $5,000, with very little paperwork. And we're going to call them Make It Happen Grants. Mm-hmm. And people can just apply to make something happen. It might be our neighborhood needs a playground, or we'd like to have a community garden, or we'd like to started tutoring. It was just something. And the idea was that the what of it mattered almost less than the fact that people were saying, 
I'd like to try to do something. And they were allowed to take an And they were allowed to do it. And the presence of that large foundation supporting, validating the agency, the latent agency of people, really, that over several years, light bulbs started to go off. If we could... If we can build a neighborhood playground, maybe we can advocate to have a better school. Maybe we can advocate to... It really created a ripple effect. So I think in in dispirited places, mm-hmm. that ability to cultivate a mindset of agency is really, really That's important. That's a great point. I see a parallel in international work. When I first started working in Africa, there was this widespread myth or belief amongst the international development workers that African cultures were not entrepreneurial. Wow. And what it has become clear to me is that all people are entrepreneurial exactly. if they're allowed to be. Exactly. It is a natural exactly. human quality. Exactly. And that you need enabling environments to to allow that quality to be pursued and that as those enabling environments have grown you've seen this outpouring of entrepreneurship and of initiative and of innovation and creativity absolutely that that then raises up communities and societies I think that's absolutely true and when that can be a shared sense when people can come together in a civic entrepreneurship yeah. it really can be quite possible and i think this is this characteristic is what can set apart a community that is able to weather the the ebb and flow to mm-hmm. one that gets either overwhelmed or or stranded i i think this idea of an enabling environment to allow human creativity to to flourish is very, very important. And in in terms of philanthropy, it almost matters, these foundations, it matters less what they fund than that they create an enabling environment right. that allows people's creativity to, to flourish. And that means practicing the virtue of respect and belief in the inherent capability of people to do something different, and we have not always had that. But. So that would be one of the darker sides of development, that we haven't trusted people, or I, that we I, haven't... I, I think so. We haven't um, promoted that fundamental belief in people's own agency. We have not. We have not. And I, I do think it's easy to fall, to become susceptible to that belief, that what people need is my wisdom... <laughs> not there, their knowledge. Yes, and I think this is something we always have to be reminded of. And there is, there is enormous wisdom. This is one of the reasons that it's very satisfying to work in the South, and I'm sure it is satisfying to work in other developing societies because the assets are so rich and the culture is so rich. There's so much to build on. There's so much that keeps people committed to the places where they are when they could leave. As my friend who ran the Danville Foundation said, I can only invest in a glass that is half full, which I really yeah. love. And, and the fact is, a lot of glasses are already half full. We just may not see, see them to be that way. 
So this is a wonderful note to end this season's deeper look into the darker side of development. So we've explored many of the contradictions, many of the dilemmas in doing human development work, but I love the fact that we're ending with the notion of human agency and of a glass that is Mm. half full and that when we see it as half full, when we recognize the inherent uh, ability and quality of people to take responsibility for their own development, that that mentality then becomes uh, the key to addressing human development challenges. I, I think it might well be. <laughs> so thank you for that. Thank you for that wonderful analogy of uh, thinking of progress um, as tides that come in and out. And to end this season, I am going to ask you two questions that I have been asking all of our guests this year. The first question is, what is something that almost no one agrees with you on? (laughs) Oh my heavens. Parts of the South that are chronically poor are not places to be pitied. They're places to be understood and their assets supported. Yes. I really think we are castigated for the place where we live and that causes us not to see profound assets and very good people. And potential. And potential. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that, David. And then my final question to you is, what's one lesson you've learned that you'd like to share with our listeners? Practice humility on a daily basis. I couldn't agree more with you. It's important to remind ourselves that authentic development work is grounded in humility. Exactly. It's walking with people, not in front of them. And that is the joy of it, I think. David, thanks so much for a terrific conversation. Listeners, thank you for tuning in during 2019. I think you'll agree with me this was a wonderful way to end our deeper look into the darker side of development. You can also explore episodes from previous seasons. We have a rich library looking at the sustainable development goals, looking at emergency response, and then this year's look at the darker side of development. It's been great having you all with us. As we conclude the 2019 season, I want to give a shout out to a Deeper Looks producer, Catherine Wise, who is the genius behind these terrific episodes. I also want to thank everybody who has sent in comments. They have been really useful in helping shape conversations in the episodes. And I hope you'll be joining us in 2020 for the next season of A Deeper Look. We'll have a new theme. We are going to explore the shape of things to come in human development, where we are going to be talking to leaders in the development field about the trends, the challenges, the issues that are going to shape our work in the future.